This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for creating a blog, website, portfolio, or an online store. To create your own space, visit squarespace.com and save 10% by using offer code TREK8. And also by TrekFan. It's not just a fan club, it's an adventure. You'll explore new places, learn new things, and collaborate with other fans to solve puzzles, complete real-life mission objectives, and win great prizes. Don't miss out. Help move us toward the Star Trek future by visiting trekfan.org. Plus, if you'd like to support our programming personally, visit trek.fm slash donate to get our new alien badges and art prints, featuring original illustration by Tobu Ushi. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. How we doing, Trip? Ready when you are. Prepare for warp. Course laid in, sir. Request permission to get underway. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated enterprise show. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me today, as she is each and every week, is my co-host from Down Under, Kate Walsh. Hello, Kate. How are things in Australia this week? They're uh, sunnier than they usually are, given that we're recording in the daytime, which is nice. Um, And they're very cold, despite that sun. Um, I'm not a fan of winter, as I've said before. And um, how about you, Chris? It's quite okay here. Like you said, it's sunny. We're recording in the daytime and it's hot as usual. I'm looking forward to autumn. I'm looking forward to football season. But, you know, today we're going to talk about Enterprise, of course. And, you know, Kate, in addition to Enterprise, I know you are a big Voyager fan. And I think you and I both agree that Tom Paris had one of the best character arcs on the show. Oh, absolutely. Tom Paris was just one of those characters that, you know, we saw such a transition from what he was presented like in the pilot um, the journey that he went on in his relationship with Balana and um, developing as a, a quite a responsible character. Goes on to have a family by the end. So, yeah, Tom Paris was certainly one of my favourite characters in Voyager. Yes, yeah, same here. And, you know, not only was the character interesting throughout the whole series, but the man behind the character was equally brilliant. And that man, of course, is Robert Duncan McNeil. And his influence on Star Trek has lived on beyond his time in the Delta Quadrant as he directed four episodes of the show we talk about here on Warp 5, Enterprise. And to that end, I am really thrilled that we have joining us today, the man behind the con, the man behind the camera. Hello, Robbie. How are you doing today? And thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Um, I've spoken with Kate before. We've had our... uh our time together on the podcast. So it's very nice to be reunited with her and nice to talk to you for the first time. Yeah, great, great. So, uh, you know, did you ever think that you would be, of course, I know you thought you'll be talking about Voyager for years and years, you know, being part of Star Trek, but did you ever think that you would be sitting down and really talking about Enterprise in depth? Um, Yeah, I I did, actually. I... um... I, I remember when in our final season of Voyager, there was a lot of talk about the next series and some of the ideas that people were thinking of and uh, that Rick Berman and Brandon Braga were coming up with. And I'd heard talk of Scott Bakula potentially being the captain of that new series. And I'd worked with Scott before I did uh, Quantum Leap mm-hmm. uh, years before. And even though it was just one episode, I really thought very highly of Scott and uh, I don't know there was just a there was a sense that the next series was going to um, you know be something fresh and different and really exciting kind of the the prequel version and um, you know there was even talk of you know hoping that the next series cast with Scott Bakula could be the feature the next feature cast you know there was very high hopes I guess is is what I'm getting at. So, um, so yeah, I, and, and I, because I had been directing, I thought there was a very good chance that I might be involved as a director. 
so yeah, I, I you know we had high hopes, so I'm not surprised that I'm talking about Enterprise. So you directed four episodes of Enterprise, and the first one came quite early in season one with Cold Fright. How did you yeah. end up being brought into the series as a director? Well, I mean, it's it goes back to the Voyager episodes that I directed, and I think that they were very pleased with the episodes I had directed on Voyager, and um, so that's really how it came about that first season. And I was already starting to direct outside of Star Trek that very first season of Enterprise, the very first few months after uh, Voyager was off the air. I was directing on Dawson's Creek, mm-hmm. and um, so... Uh, the episode that, that I came in for Enterprise would kind of fit my schedule that year. And, uh, you know, I would have loved to have done more, but um, but I was already starting to get busy outside of the Trek world. So, um, you know, scheduling sometimes uh, when you're doing different episodes of different shows, scheduling can be tricky because they don't all line up exactly perfectly sometimes. As Chris mentioned, you did Cold Front. Um, in season one, and then you went on to do The Breach, uh, Twilight, and Countdown right at the end. But it, but you've mentioned as well that you, you've also directed through Voyager, but in particular with Enterprise, what was the process of directing an episode of Star Trek? Can you talk us through what that's like for you? Yeah, I mean, everyone has, a, I guess, a different approach, and, and my approach has always been to sort of read the um, – the script and find something that that I can connect to personally. And I, you know, particularly with the sci-fi genre, um, there's always sort of science fiction stories that are, that are not based in reality necessarily, but um, but they have a connection to something. Uh, you know, they, they become a metaphor for something that is very current and very universal and very... Um, Relatable, so I always try to find what those elements are that, and how to relate that to something that I, I can connect to emotionally, and and so that's what I'd often do in the beginning was just kind of look at the themes and the big ideas and and try to ground them in something, you know, find the metaphor that it sort of represents, and then after you kind of have your your premise and your theme and your big idea, then you can start breaking it down and find ways of making all the scenes sort of support those ideas and and this this shooting approach and the kinds of shots you might do, the style of, of, of uh, directing that will, that will support those ideas, those metaphors, those themes, the the best. So after that, you start breaking down the, the very specific choices you have to make, the casting choices, the, the kinds of sets that you may have to build, the, those kind of things. You just start breaking it down and, uh, coming up with your plan and, and um, you know, in Star Trek there, there was a lot of visual effects and this was, you know, a generation or two back in terms of visual effects. Things have changed a lot since the 90s and or the early 2000s uh, in terms of how people approach visual effects, what we can do. You know, we were still doing a lot of model work, a lot of very um, traditional kind of visual effects on Star Trek. So that was a big part of your mm-hmm. prep too is, figuring out how to integrate the visual effects challenges into your your episode. So speaking of visual effects, one question I wanted to ask you is in Countdown, that was one of the episodes that featured these indie insectoid and aquatic races, which were CGI aliens. And h- yeah. how do you approach directing a scene where some of the characters in the scene are not there? They're going to be put in a CGI. Well, what we did, we, we had a couple of sort of green suits on, you know, motion control, motion capture kinds mm-hmm. of suits. And, um, you know, they were, we had some wonderful stand-ins for those characters. And uh, so you'd rehearse with the stand-ins in the suit, so you'd have good, you know, eye lines of where people should be looking. And um, some of the shots you could, you could use the stand-in in the green suit, some of the shots you had to take them out and just talk to thin air, but at least using someone to rehearse and kind of establish uh, how the scene's going to feel and how it's going to play, that was very, very helpful. And and like I said, some of the people that that did that job were, were, you know, really committed and very good at it. So, And what about in a case like in 
cold front where Archer and Daniels are, you know, they're having to look around this time stream in the temporal observatory. That's a case where, again, you're kind of looking into thin air. How do you get what you want? You know, in your head, you've visualized what you want to happen in the scene. Is is there a challenge there or is it pretty much have them do it and then the CGI guys fill it in? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a bit of, um, it can be a bit of a technical challenge, but but once you have you know, sort of the ideas. I mean, you know, once you come up with the way you're going to film it, you talk to the, your art department who comes up with all the graphic inspirations. You talk to your cinematographer and visual effects supervisors that uh, are all part of the team. And, you you know, you get real specific about what you should be looking at at any given time. And you let the actors see some of that research you've done. So they get an idea through the still photographs and things of what they're going to be looking at. And then uh, it's really not, usually not that tricky. Most actors, especially the the series regulars on Star Trek, were so used to it, it was was easy for them. Sometimes a guest star would have trouble acting to thin air, but that's, that's, you know, part of the job of an actor is pretending really, really well. So... uh, Well, the other thing we get to see in the episode Cold Front is that reverse echo effect. Um, when they're talking with Future Guy. And that's something that was dropped later in the show because, I believe, of the expense. Yeah, I think the expense of that, it's funny, Dan Curry kind of came up with that and uh, I think it was Dan's concept, that sort of the exact detail of how that was done. Um, Yeah, it, it was very expensive. I think if if you were to try to do that nowadays, it would not be so expensive, but with, with some of the computer tracking software and all the effects kind of plugins that you can get at these days, I think it would be much easier to do. But back then, like I said, we were still kind of, we had kind of a workflow that was coming out of, you know, 15 years of, of Star Trek habits. And uh, sometimes it's hard to break those. So they were still, you know, shooting things in a in a familiar but sometimes a little old-fashioned approach. And uh, yeah, I remember talking with Dan Curry. Dan Curry came over to Chuck, the show that I worked on, and how hard it was in fact that temporal kind of shift effect when we did it on Enterprise, and how that could be done so much easier now. So, speaking of something like like Chuck, I'm curious. A lot of fans. Uh, they find out as they watch extras or go to conventions and such about how cramped some of the sets are on Star Trek because, uh, you know, you guys who direct, you do a great job of making everything look big. But I know a lot of those sets are really small. And uh, I think about, I've read that in Cold Front, the fight scene between Archer and Silic was difficult to shoot because that corridor was very cramped. Do you find did you find it challenging to direct action sequences on Star Trek as opposed to some other television shows that you've done? Um, sometimes, you know, the, the whole idea behind Enterprise was with the kind of prologue or the prequel concept was that that ship would be built like a submarine. It would be, you know, um, it would be very tight quarters. The ceilings would be low. Um, they wanted it to authentically feel like what a first-generation sort of starship might actually be like. Right. So, so yeah, the quarters were small, but, you know, I, I don't know. I think you you sort of embrace in the story all the parts of, of the kind of story you're telling. I mean, for example, I remember once on Chuck, we did a, we did a fight inside a car where someone was in the back seat, oh. someone in the front, yeah. and the, the whole concept was to have a fight scene in a car and it was, you know, it was a great concept because um, it was a little unconventional, but that's what made it, that's what made that scene work. And just like in Archer's Quarters or on the Enterprise, sometimes being in those small, tight spaces was part of, you know, the the, the story you were trying to communicate. So, I, yeah, I, I don't think it's particularly harder. It's just a different approach. You know, you take a different approach. Sure. Um, the other thing that we've um, we've seen quite a bit of, uh, we see it a lot in the original series, but um, also in the later series, is that there are, tends to be a lot of scenes that are shot in caves. We we saw this if you if you recall going back to Blood Fever, 
and your famous scenes there with uh, Balana or Tom Paris's scenes with Balana, I should say. Um, but we also saw it again in uh, the episode The Breach, which was in season two of Enterprise. What are the challenges that you face in, in directing and shooting in that kind of environment? Well, so, you know, on Voyager and Enterprise, there were standing cave sets that were kind of small. They weren't very extensive. But for the breach, we needed a very large, um, quite a variety of looks and, and places to shoot because the whole story was about traveling d- deeper and deeper into this subterranean world. Um, and particularly the rock climbing aspect. There was nothing built uh, or existing that we could do that on. So we had to build a set for the climbing and the sliding and the, uh, all of that stuff. And um, that was very particular. They built a, a gorgeous cave set that, uh, a rock wall set in the corner of the soundstage that went all the way up to the roof. Um, it was great. It gave us a lot of um, opportunities to tell that story. And they also, I had suggested that they build five or six, maybe even more, um, stalactites, you know, rocks that we could roll up into the foreground so you could just kind of change the foreground and you'd feel like you were in a different part of the cave. So um, that big giant corner uh, rock wall caves that became very versatile for us. And you know, there was one section where they were sliding down. Uh, they slipped and started sliding down like a slide. And it was very hard for us to figure out how to film that, uh, to move the camera as quickly as they would slide. And ultimately, we ended up putting a bunch of dirt on the floor and turning the camera sideways and dragging them across the floor. So all those real tight shots of them sliding down the side of the cliff wall is really just them lying on the stage floor and being dragged 50 feet across the stage floor. Wow, interesting. But when you play it in real tight, it feels like with its camera tilted sideways, it, when you you know play it in a close-up or something, it looks like they're just sliding down you know, from top to bottom yeah. uh, vertically, but they're not. They're, they're lying on their backs being pulled across the stage floor. So, um, That's very cool. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's those old school tricks that are the smartest way to do things. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you talk about, you know, the suggestions you made here about building the set and having the rocks and all. And since you spent so much time on Voyager as an actor, and of course you directed four episodes there as well, but you're very familiar with how Star Trek sets are built. I think what's possible kind of what the art department would typically do in terms of budgets and all how many things did you suggest uh, not only on star trek but other shows as well but as a director you suggest elements of the set elements of the design how receptive are they to those how often do they tell you you know something's not possible and you have to modify your vision for that and, uh, and how did being on voyager you know help you approach that in enterprise and maybe make it efficient yeah, I think that um, I think that being familiar with Star Trek and the kinds of approaches that we took on on the sci-fi stories there, being familiar, having spent you know hours and hours and days and weeks as an actor on this set, definitely made my my critical thinking and problem solving of those those things. Um, you know, it it it, it helped me to come up with solutions. You know, I think for the most part on any TV show, uh, in any production, if someone has a good idea that's a smart idea, it doesn't matter where it came from. uh, If it's a good solution, everyone's willing to accept it. I did, I I have worked with some directors when I was an actor. uh, I have known some, not just directors, but producers or cinematographers or all kinds of people. You know, whenever your ego gets too involved and you're making decisions for the wrong reasons, if you're making decisions trying to look like you're smarter or you're the one in charge or all that, those tend to be not very smart decisions. So, um, like I said, I think they were always very receptive to my ideas if they were good ideas. A good idea is a good idea. 
And if I hear a good idea from, you know, the grip on the truck or a driver or a craft service guy, I'll happily take that good idea and, uh, you know, and, and try to make it work. So, Well, I've got a, a really tough question for you here. If you could have done whatever you want, what hairstyle would you have given Archer? <laughs> well, what hairstyle would I have given Archer? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think if I, I think Archer should have had uh, the bun of steel, like like Kate Mulgrew <laughs> did. I think some version oh, of a perfect. bun of steel would have been the appropriate power do for Archer. <laughs> perfect. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the bun of steel. Um, just um, seeing as you've mentioned Voyager. Um, and, and as we've said, you did direct four episodes, both of Voyager and of Enterprise. How was your experience um, as a director different between those two shows? Mm, well, um, you know, on Voyager, the cast was were many of my closest friends, and they knew me as the actor, and the, and and they knew that side, the other side of me. So, um, and they were also like family. So. There was just a comfort level. There was uh, so much support from my cast on a Voyager every time I directed. There was just, you know, you felt like you were working with family. Definitely on Enterprise, um, I was one of many directors, and I was not in their cast, and then they didn't have that same relationship with me. So, um, you know, I definitely felt more like, the temporary substitute teacher or something, you know, coming in, you know, that's that's typically how a guest director feels, you know, because there's so many ongoing dramas with any cast and crew that you're just coming in for briefly. But I always felt very welcome from the Enterprise cast, uh, and they were always lovely, but it was, it was like hanging out with friends, whereas Voyager was like hanging out with family. Mm. You certainly get that feeling watching Voyager that it, it's very much a family, you know, not the cast as well as the characters. So that's something that always drew me to the show. Yeah, for sure. I, I think there was, a, I think inherently in the in the premise of Voyager, you know, these characters being lost and stuck with each other created a sense of family in a way that um, I think by design, Enterprise. Uh, was designed to have a little more conflict internally, you know. Mm. So um, there was a different tone to the Enterprise stories. Um, not that they weren't a cohesive group, but it was it was a story about, you know, uh, Archer trying to figure out what Starfleet is and what it should be and bringing all these new, uh, you know, people together just had a different tone to it, you know, but but still a, a lot of fun to do. Well, Robbie, I wanted to ask you before we move on beyond Star Trek things here, of the episodes that we've talked about that you directed in Enterprise, which was your personal favorite to direct? Um, I really liked The Breach, I have to say. Uh, part of it was just from the rock climbing and all of the technical stuff we had people on wires repelling and falling and um, just the technical aspect of that was a lot of fun to do, you know, going through all the different versions of caves and it felt very action-packed, you know, even though they were moving slowly through these tunnels, uh, it just felt, there was, there was an inherent sort of excitement just to shooting all of that. Yeah, I would say the breach. It was a good episode for balancing both the action side of Star Trek and the social side of Star Trek, where, you know, you have this problem between yeah. Flux uh, and the others there. And it that the Flux element reminded me a little bit of Jatrell on Voyager, uh, not exactly the same, but kind yeah. of that, that same situation. So uh, it's a great episode for you both to to delve into that side of Star Trek as well as enjoying the mm -hmm. the action and the very creative solutions that you found. Yeah. I was going to ask, um, you have directed uh, Star Trek, but you've also directed a lot of other things as well. Over time, what have you found inspires you most as a director? And are there elements that you think 
you know, this really is my style. You know, how do you define what your style is as a director, what you look for, what draws you into to work on something? Um, I think the thing that I always look for is kind of a, a, an honest and relatable emotional experience. Uh, and I'm sure that comes from the reason I was drawn to being an actor is exploring the emotional experience of human beings in the world and relating to each other. And so uh, I think my approach tends to always lean into that sort of uh, focus, first of all. And then I always enjoy kind of once you, once you kind of um, are able to identify that sort of emotional experience and the point of view that you're trying to communicate for any given scene or story. Then I also enjoy just the technical side, which is, all right, what's the fun way to explore that? Is it a certain camera style? Is it a certain kind of lens? Is it a kind of a trick shot? Or a, is, is there something that you can bring to it visually that will make it a little, um, you know, more clear and visceral, that, that emotional experience that you've sort of identified, you know? Um, and I also, I always look at kind of a POV. Whose who's POV is the audience supposed to be in at any given moment? Which character is, is kind of the audience's way into the, to the scene or to the story? And, and then try to kind of give that experience to that character. How is, that, how is the story coming through that character and how to shoot, shoot that the best way? And if we think back to... Uh, the very first Voyager episode you directed, which was Sacred Ground. How are you different as a director now than what you were all that time ago? <laughs> um, I think when I first directed on Voyager, Sacred Ground in particular, that very first episode, I think I really believed that I had to have all the answers. And that was incredibly stressful. And I think I thought that for a long, long time. I don't think that so much anymore. I, I, I know that I can come up with some good answers for any situation, and I know that I can come up with good ideas. Actors are going to want to have some good ideas. They're going to want to have some answers. The, the cinematographer is going to want to answer, solve some problems, and he's going to have good ideas. So I, I guess I just have a lot more faith in the process revealing things that I don't have necessarily have to have every answer for. Um, mm. And that's, that's something that I don't think I, when I first directed, I didn't quite understand. I thought I had to have every single detail worked out and understood. And, and, uh, and now I kind of enjoy the process. Things will surprise you. That's great. Certainly a lot less stressful. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find creatively acting versus directing, is directing more rewarding to you creatively or do you find unique elements in each that, you know, satisfy your desire to create and, uh, and solve problems in that way? I, I think that um, I, when, when, I, when I first started acting, I started in the theater and the thing that drew me to the theater as an actor originally was that you... Once you rehearsed and opened the play, you were really in control of how the story was told throughout the play. You know, there was no cutting, there was no starting, you know, doing things out of order. You told the story from beginning to end right in front of an audience, and, and there was a lot of excitement in that sort of control and being a part of the whole story every night in the theater. When I started acting in television and film, at first it was very new and exciting, but I think after a while I started feeling like I was just a part of a very, a very small part of the, of the storytelling. Um, that's how it felt to me. You know, I just, the sets were already chosen. The, the blocking was already kind of worked out. The shots were already planned. Everything, the lines were written, everything was done and you were kind of doing it all out of order. And I felt like I wanted to be a part of the bigger picture. So, Ultimately, I think directing is more satisfying because I just um, wanted to be a part of, of, of the whole story and not just one character's 
part of it. So, um, yeah, I think it's I think it's directing for me now is is much more rewarding than acting would be um, at this point in my life. But um, but I actually wouldn't mind going back to the theater at some point. If you know that that's probably if I went back to acting, that would be the place I'd like to do it is is uh, in the theater because it was to me that was the most exciting kind of acting that you could do. Yeah, and I think yeah, I I love theater too, and I think that the fact that so many Star Trek actors do come from the theater has really enhanced Star Trek itself on television so much over the years. Yeah. Do so far you've been directing TV and you've directed many many television series. Do you have any desire to direct motion pictures, or do you really love television as a medium? I've really enjoyed television up until this point. Um, I have to admit, right now, I'm kind of a bit at a crossroads and looking to see what the next exciting thing is. Um, I, honestly, I, you know, for 10 years or more since Voyager ended, 12 years now, I guess, um, I've, I've been able to tr do a lot of different kinds of shows and direct a lot of different things, produce some television series, I've directed some pilots, I've done a lot of different things. Um, the thing that was the most exciting over the last 10, 12 years was, were the pilots that I directed because there's something about starting without a template. You know, when you come into yeah. a series, there's sort of a template already existing. But with a pilot, you're creating it from scratch. So um, right now I'm kind of looking to get back to some pilot directing and... Um, not as much producing and just going from show to show. I, I don't know that that's what I want to keep doing. Uh, I'd like to get back to pilots, maybe a feature, you know, maybe. The thing with a, a film is that it, it's a very long process. That's one thing I do like about television is, is that the result is, you know, completed pretty quickly. It's not, you know, it doesn't drag out for years, and a feature can often drag out for years. Um, so I think if I did a feature, it would have to be something that I really was capable of committing, you know, two years or so of your life to it, because that's easily what it could be. I uh, get the sense that... Um that you perhaps get a, a little bit restless, that you like to, to be challenged and to, to be kept on your toes and doing different things. I mean, we spoke a little bit on Track News and Views about how uh, both with Chuck and 666 that they they kind of crossed genres and it wasn't really clear how those shows fitted in, um, which was a good thing. It, you know, they, they were very challenging I imagine to do and to get that balance right but they it was great to watch as a viewer to, to see these really complex shows but you've also done um, quite a diverse range of shows like Dawson's Creek and OC Las Vegas um, Medium and even Supernatural more recently and as you say doing pilots it enables you to kind of come in and, and go out again and move on to something new and different and challenging is that is that would that be true to say? Yes, I, I uh, yes, my wife uh, is constantly frustrated by my restlessness because I, I get bored <laughs> very quickly. So, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, she's always like, "Just be happy where you are." You, you know, you're always looking to do something else. And, but I, yeah, I like <laughs> variety for sure. I, I get very restless if I feel like we're just repeating the same things. That that was one thing that was really exciting about Star Trek, for example, was week to week you could be doing very different kinds of episodes. You know, one, one episode might be kind of a romantic light comedy, and the next episode might be some murder mystery, and the next episode might be a love story. And so Star Trek was able to, in its own way, um, really mix things up, you know, week episode to episode in terms of the, the kind of tone, and that was a lot of fun. Chuck was another example of, you know, a kind of mashup style show, but year to year, that show, the writers were clever enough to kind of relaunch 
the show each season with a whole new set of problems and rules mm. and challenges. And so mm. that, that made five years on Chuck uh, very exciting because we were changing every year. We were evolving and growing and kind of relaunching a whole new show each year. And I can see, therefore, why theatre would appeal to you because, yeah, you get to, to come in and, and then do, do – the, the show and then perhaps go on and do something that's just so radically different and challenge yourself as an actor in that too. Yeah, that's why the, the theatre was just, uh, you know, there's something exciting and dangerous about being live in front of an audience. You never know how it's going to go and how they're going to accept it. And I remember years ago I did, a, I did a play on Broadway for almost a year and we had so many different receptions night to night of, of that show, you know. One audience might think it's the funniest play they've ever seen, and the next night they might take everything very seriously and heavy. And it was just, it was, it was a chemistry that could change, you know, performance to performance, uh, which was a lot of fun. So, would I be right in saying that it's not just that you get restless, it's that you like risk? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The last time we spoke, I was in the middle of a, a motorcycle trip into I didn't even know where I was going so uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's a there's a side to life that I, I enjoy risk and a, a little bit of the unknown and a little bit of uh, you know um, excitement like that yeah yeah well Ravi uh, as a last point here uh, as we wrap up We've talked a little bit about Chuck we've talked about 666 Park Avenue which were some of the recent things that you've done. What are you working on now, and where do you think you'll be going in the year or so to come? Yeah, I just I just finished uh, another episode of The Mentalist um, last week, and I'm in New York right now prepping an episode of Blue Bloods with Tom Selleck. And um, then next month I go to do uh, an episode of Suburgatory, a comedy, uh, ABC comedy, which I'm very excited about. I haven't done comedy in a few years, you know, flat-out comedy, so I'm, I'm excited to get back to that. And, um, and then a, a few more things booked you know, down the road, but I'm, I'm trying to focus on pilot season coming up in, in the new year and see if I can't get back into, uh, into the pilot game. Because like I said, the, the, the last pilot I did was called Samantha Who, and that ran for a couple of years. Yeah. But just the, the process of, of putting that cast together and coming up with the look and the feel and the tone of that show was a lot of fun for me. So I'd lo- love to get back into into that sort of situation again this year. Yeah, I enjoyed that show quite a bit. Now, we're all hoping that in 2016, we're hoping that there might be a new Star Trek series coming to television. How would you feel if they called you in, not only to direct, but let's say they called you in to help with the pilot? Oh, that would be amazing. That would be wonderful. I'd love to, I'd love to, you know, that's what's been great about the Star Trek conventions and the the cons all around the world is, you know, most things you do in in television or film or theater, any of it, you know, when it's over, it's over, and uh, people can watch the episodes now and then if they want, maybe, but you tend to just move on, and that's what's been so exciting about Star Trek, is it's like, it's like you were, you know, college roommates or something, I don't know, it's like seeing, you know, having these reunions year after year after year, and staying in touch with people, and uh, uh, it's a really special family to be a part of, so I'd, I'd love to be a part of a new Star Trek series in any way uh, I could. It'd be a lot of fun. Any thoughts on where you think Star Trek should go next? Yeah, boy, I don't know. I, I That's a very good question. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Covered so much ground, you know, that it's hard to see what's new uh, out there. I, You know, I, there was a great article, I forget who wrote it, about... Voyager and how it was kind of an underrated Star Trek series, but so important because of the female characters. Mm -hmm. And I forget who wrote the article. I want to say Leonard Maltin or some critic, a very highly respected critic, but 
it really made me proud as I read that that article, looking back on Voyager, that that we all really found a way to use Star Trek to tell a very specific kind of story in terms of the female um, experience in in sci-fi and uh, between Janeway and Seven of Nine and Balana and uh, just the balance of storytelling and the perspective of storytelling I thought was very unique so um, it'd be great if the, the new series found some way to to frame a series with a with a whole fresh new aspect, kind of like that, you know. I think that's some. I don't know what the the framing would be, but to find kind of a new and fresh way into into telling sci-fi stories through the Star Trek mythology, hmm. I'm sure somebody will think of a clever one. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll get something in the next couple of years because I know everyone is really itching for Star Trek to return to television. Yeah. Well, Robbie, before we go, where can people find you if they want to, you know, keep tabs on what you're working on or uh, say hello, where should they go? Um, yeah, I, I, uh, the best place I guess would be on Twitter, which is Robert D. McNeil. Um, although I've been taking a Twitter and social media break for the last week or two because I just I was uh, decided I needed a little break so um, so I haven't been tweeting a lot but typically I, I you know kind of shoot out something on whatever I'm working on and fun little behind the scenes pictures or things like that so yeah Twitter would be the best place to stay up and that's a fact it is a fact <laughs> hashtag fact <laughs> very good well again Robbie I really appreciate you giving us some of your time tonight to talk about not only Star Trek but the art of directing which again myself as a creative pro I find very fascinating I I love to hear how other people you know approach the the creation of things whether they be television shows or theater or whatever it is Mm -hmm. so I really appreciate your time absolutely it was a pleasure talking to you guys thanks so much well, I don't know about you, Chris, but I really enjoyed that chat with Robbie today. He's always a gentleman and a pleasure to talk to. Yeah, it's just great. I love, as I, as I told Robbie there at the end, you know, I'm a creative professional. I have been for 20 years and I love hearing from other creatives about their approach. You know, it could be design, it could be directing, whatever it is. Just really fascinating for me. Absolutely. Well, Kate, as much fun as it was to talk to Robbie today, you know, this is not the only thing that we've been doing on the network this week. So here are some other things that you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, the orb, the Maquis. But then he tells Eddington, I'm going to do this to all the other Maquis planets as well. And it's, you, you don't F with the Cisco is basically what we get to here. <laughs> <laughs> do not frack with the cisco <laughs> exactly the ready room the q and the gray well there's there's kind of two sides to his guide to romance though because while we do see his uh futile attempts with Catherine janeway there's also the interaction he has with the female q which i found be much more interesting decade sto foundry alpha flight it's quite light the main thing is you get to fly around test your flying skills and test your ability to withstand Hold combat. I think we failed in that sort of <laughs> But let's just ignore that. To the journey! Life on Voyager. Well, I'm just saying oh. there was a certain, you know, there was a time period when the Doctor was, you know, like a Ken doll. So that's all I'm saying. I would not be a Ken doll. <laughs> let's put okay. it that way. Commentary, Trek stars. Hell House. And I think that this book largely is about how sexual indulgences can get lumped in together with a lot of other forms of, of, of transgression, moral and ethical and personal. Warp 5. Paul. Certainly she'd always had a dry humour all of the way through. We saw that more probably from season two onwards. And if we think about the sensuality and the feline movements from, as well as, as she's described it, then I don't think we really saw that until she started to explore her emotions more. Trek News and Views. 
Vlados and Michael and Zara. <laughs> Obviously, it has Dax in it, so win. But um, the one thing that that DS9 has done for me has it's given me a greater appreciation of Klingon. Literary treks. Nero Comics. This place feels terrible and horrible, and such a good job, I think, by the artist to really create a of sense of, that, of yeah. yeah a menace into this place like you don't want to be at repente it really does feel yeah. like the aliens graveyard and that's what else is happening on trek.fm so check out all those shows we have new trek talk for you every day of the week some days we even have two shows we're just talking trek all the time here at trek fm and you'll find them in itunes on stitcher on TuneIn, windows phone xbox zune Pretty much everywhere you get your podcasts, you should find us there. So uh, check those out and go to trek.fm slash PD for podcast directory to get links to everything. Now, Kate, let's tell everyone where to contact us if they would like to share their thoughts on the episodes of Enterprise that Robbie directed or, you know, anything else that he's done or Enterprise in general. You can go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Warp 5, and that will come to both Kate and me by email. If you'd like to talk to other listeners of Trek Film and the Trek Film crew, you can go to our forums at trek.fm slash forums. And if you'd like to send us a voicemail, you can easily do that as well. Look down the right-hand side of any page on the website site, you'll see a tab that says send voicemail. If you click it, a box will appear and you can use your webcam's microphone to record a message and upload it to us as an MP3 file. In social media, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekafilm. And we're always tweeting away about Star Trek on Twitter under username trekafilm. Now, Kate, what if people would like to look you up personally? Where should they go? Well, the best place to find me is going to be on Twitter at kateisgreatok. And uh, that is a statement, not a question. Um, <laughs> I always wonder so, about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> feel free to uh, send me a tweet, follow me if you'd like, I'll follow back. Um, we uh, we often have great chats with um, other people on Twitter about Enterprise or Star Trek in general. As you know, I'm a Voyager fan as well. So, yeah, that's where you're going to find me. Excellent. And if you'd like to find me, I'm on Twitter as well. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. And you can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username, as well as my personal website, cbrianjones.com, where I talk about things other than Star Trek, believe it or not. So uh, hit me up there. Send me an at reply if you follow me and say hello. I like to chat on Twitter. So uh, do let me know that you're there. And elsewhere on the network, you'll find me on a few other shows. On Sundays, you'll find me with Matthew Rushing on Literary Treks, where we talk about Star Trek books and comics, and we interview authors, kind of in the way that we interviewed Robbie today. On Mondays, you'll find me with Matthew on The Orb, where we talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine. And on Tuesdays, you'll find me on The Ready Room, where I'm joined by other hosts from all over the Trek Film Network, as well as other special guests, as we discuss all five live-action Star Trek series, the movies, news, and various other topics. So uh, please check all those shows out as well. And also, Kate, before we let everyone go, we'd like to ask you to please support our sponsors for this week's show. Now, your support of our sponsors is very important to making it possible for us to bring Warp 5 and other programming to you each week. First, there's Squarespace, the web's best hosting in CMS that makes it simple for you to create a beautiful blog, a website, a portfolio, an online store, really anything you can imagine. Create your own space today. I promise you're going to love it. Go to squarespace.com for your free 14-day trial, no credit card required. And then when you sign up, use offer code TREK8 to get 10% off your lifetime purchase on new accounts and choose the annual plan and get a free custom domain registration as well. So we really thank Squarespace for their support of Trek Film, and thank you for supporting Squarespace. Also, please visit trekfan.org. It's an amazing chance for you to come together with other fans to do more than just talk about Star Trek. We all love to talk about Star Trek, but if we just sit around all the time, we're never going to get to that Star Trek future. We need to jump into action and do more. And at trekfan.org, you'll be collaborating with other fans to solve puzzles and complete real-life mission objectives. And Kate, you went there, you solved the first puzzle, I did. What do you think about trickfan.org? It's actually really fun. Um, it's uh, it was great to be able to go into the site and be challenged straight away. You know, it's um, so and I, and I think that's what Trek fans are into. You know, we'll, we'll like a little bit of intellectual stimulation, and, and that's what you're going to get with Trek fan. Right, make you feel a little bit like you are a Starfleet officer yourself, right? Oh, exactly. So support us and support Trek fan by going to trekfan.org. 
solve that first puzzle and take the next step on your adventure. And we really thank TrekFan for their support of Trek Film and Warp 5 as well. And also, if you like the smooth jazz cover of Where My Heart Will Take Me that we use here on Warp 5, go check out Andrew Allen's album, Smooth Federation. Now, Kate, do you think T'Pol would approve of the theme music we use here on Warp 5? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I'm pretty sure that it was the music that was playing that night she went into the Fusion nightclub. Oh, maybe so. Maybe that's what got her hooked in. Mm. So it, it invoked emotions in her, and I think it does the same in all of us. So go check it out. Andrew Allen, he has nine other jazz renditions of music from across Star Trek on the album. You can pick it up in iTunes or on Amazon. Uh, go check it out. We really love it. I listen to it all the time, and uh, I know you're going to love it too. So uh, go support what Andrew is doing over there with Smooth Federation. And lastly, if you would personally like to support the network and our programming, we have a way for you to do that as well. Go to trek.fm slash donate, where you'll find eight alien-themed badges as a thank you for your contributions. We also have art prints of these aliens, which are much larger. They're A5 size. They're from the waist up. They're very beautiful. And they're all done by Tobu Ushi, who does most of the artwork that you see on our website. And you can mix and match badges or art prints. Choose what you want. We have different levels of donations that you can make. And your contributions help us cover the costs of production, storage, and bandwidth that's needed to bring this programming to you every week. So go please support us at trek.fm slash donate. Once again, thanks everyone for listening. We uh, hope you enjoyed the interview with Robert Duncan McNeil. Join us again next week here in the Decon Chamber for another episode of Warp 5. <laughs>